So the idea that they're there to fight ISIS, nobody's fighting ISIS. Nobody's been fighting ISIS for, se for seven weeks because they have been entirely hunkered down. Hello and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick Carver-Fox, joined by my co-host John Allen Gay. Before we jump into an exciting conversation, I want to mention that applications are open for two of JQIS's incredible fellowships, MPF and SLF. MPF, or the Marcellus Policy Fellowship, is a remote opportunity for students and folks with less than two years of experience working in U.S. foreign policy. Over the course of a semester, hear from experts behind closed doors about the important strategic issues to the United States and learn how to write a professional-grade policy analysis. I did MPF. It's great. Please apply. SLF, or the Strategic Leaders Fellowship, is an opportunity for foreign policy professionals with 5 to 15 years of experience to do DC-based monthly programming, engage with experts, and go on an international study tour. Applications for both close in mid-January. Check our website at jqas.org for more details. But back to the show. Today, we're thrilled to have a conversation with Michael Domino. Michael Domino is a public policy manager and fellow at Defense Priorities. He's a former career CIA military analyst and counterterrorism officer, serving in operational assignments overseas and authoring key strategic intelligence assessments for the President's Daily Brief. He's advised the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the United States European Command, and Senator John McCain. Michael is going to be speaking with us about the conflict in Gaza and American strategy in the Middle East. That's enough from me. Let's jump right into our conversation with Michael Domino. Michael Domino, welcome to Security Dilemma. Reuters reported a few hours ago that Israeli airstrikes are occurring after a week-long truce, with many areas of southern Gaza now being targeted. Can you walk us through a little bit about the current situation on the ground in Gaza? Uh, you know, we're recording this on December 1st, but uh, what's happening right now and what do you think we can expect in the next few days? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I, I got to say first at the start, um, you guys have the best name of any uh, international relations related podcast. I was relaying that to some other colleagues uh, earlier in the week. So kudos on the name. But uh, no, it's, it is great to be with you guys. Um, yeah, I think when we look at what's happening in Gaza right now, you know, there, there was a lot of speculation up front that this truce could potentially snowball into a wider ceasefire. I was very skeptical of that uh, for a number of reasons. And uh, and, and, and I think a few others were as well. And I think that's that's obviously borne out at this point. Um, and I think we will see operations resume similar to the scale that we saw before. Um, you're going to see uh, if, you, if you're going off of the, you know, the, the at least the indications from the Israeli war cabinet, from other uh, leaders in the IDF, Khan Yunus is a major objective for them. And I think that um, they're going to establish the same kind of ground movement, you know, followed by a cordon, kind of the, similar to what we saw in Gaza City happen in South Gaza. So I expect to see um, a pickup on um, sort of operations to shape that next phase, uh, as well as, um, you know, supporting fires. I think we're going to see a big uptick in artillery, uh, in night operations again, in raids. And then similarly on the Hamas side, I think you're going to see uh, a resumption of rocket attacks and other operations to try to uh, booby trap and uh, sabotage, you know, as many kind of main arteries, ground lines of communication as uh, as uh, as they can. So, I, you know, it's unfortunate. I think I think uh, I, you know it was. I was hoping that we might see 
uh, a little bit more than we did. But at the same time, I'm not I'm not terribly surprised that uh, we're, we're mostly back to, to where we were a couple of days ago. Yeah, it seems like uh, the northern front has seen some rocketry from Hezbollah uh, or possibly from Palestinian groups that are present in southern Lebanon at at Hezbollah's toleration uh, aimed at Israel. And there's been a lot of focus on the conflict in Gaza, but there are these other arenas of the conflict, not just this northern front with uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and a bit in the Golan Heights, but also further afield. Uh, the Houthis have been shooting all kinds of things uh, to the north at, uh, at Israel, possibly at some of the U.S. ships out in the Red Sea. Uh, and then in Iraq and Syria, there's been activity uh, aimed at the U.S. presence there. Uh, what's going on in these places? Yeah, so so you're you're right, and and that's been a huge um, area of concern, especially from a U.S. perspective, is not just vertical escalation within the conflict in Gaza, but horizontal escalation when it comes to some of these other fronts. So I'll, I'll kind of take them one at a time. Um, if we look at Lebanon, you know, I was more concerned about Hezbollah and their uh, level of involvement several weeks ago. Uh, and I think at this point, I'm much less concerned about that for a number of reasons. I mean, right, you saw Hassan Nasrallah go out and basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, throw Hamas under the bus and sort of disown any kind of, uh, you know, foreknowledge or, or coordination regarding October 7th. You also saw a number of the major tripwires for Hezbollah involvement that, um, you know, a lot of Lebanon watchers and, and folks that have worked on the group in the past, like I have. Uh, in the intelligence community kind of look at, right? Okay, you know, the, the beginning of the ground incursion was an opportunity for them to get involved. Some of these higher profile events regarding, you know, Al-Shifa Hospital or Al-Ali Hospital, those were also tripwires for Hezbollah to get further involved. They didn't do that at any point. So I think at this point, they have been very clear in signaling that they're they're comfortable with some of these border skirmishes, trading rocket and mortar fire, and and making it look like, hey, we're involved, which was also kind of a strange thing that that Nasrallah tried to do, right, in his multiple addresses here is to say, well, we are involved, right? Like, well, we are participating. And I think I think anybody, right, that's 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 being objective about, you know, the military analysis here knows that um, they're, they're doing the bare minimum, basically, to, to be able to say that. So, you know, I think that was a bigger concern for me early in the conflict. And at this point, all the indicators that I'm seeing, I, I'm not as concerned about any kind of involvement from Hezbollah. Um, when you look at Iraq and Syria, you know, I've talked a lot about this, um, you know, in, in various other outlets and on, on Twitter and things like that over the past several weeks. This is where I'm most concerned right now. Um, especially, again, we're talking about the ways in which the U.S. could get more involved. Um, so we've seen uh, these, you know, Iran, you know, Iran-backed, IRGC-affiliated Shia militia groups conduct a ton of attacks, right, on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. And I think it's important to put some of those numbers in context. Um, prior to the conflict, you saw between, you know, January of 21 and March of 23, about, you know, 82 or 83 attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria combined. And that's about, you know, a rate of one every 10 days or so. 
Uh, now we're seeing a rate of about three, three and a half attacks per day, right, on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. And that all started uh, post-October 7th, that, that huge delta. Um, and those attacks have slowed a little bit during the truce. And again, I think some people were misunderstanding and, and, and sort of misaligning a few different things in their heads. They were saying, well, you know, this is a good sign because, you know, maybe this is related to the truce. I said, and other people said, these attacks are going to continue. They continued uh, through the truce. There was that attack on um, MSS Euphrates in Syria uh, during the truce. So uh, look, those uh, those attacks and that that arena is still really concerning for me. I know we can talk more into that later, so I'm not. I won't go too deep in it now. Uh, but then, if we turn to Yemen, you know, uh, this is really an interesting one. I, the Houthis, right? It, it, it's funny that we're using the term rebels at this point. I mean, they control basically all of what used to be North Yemen prior to the partition at this point. And they have, you know, basically taken the, the, you know, seized kind of the initiative there over the past several years to kind of set up a pseudo state. And so uh, the Houthis are a major force. They're much more capable than Hamas or Hezbollah when we're talking about, uh, you know, from a military standpoint. So their involvement is is concerning, but I would I would say you know I don't see them doing a lot more than what we've seen to this point. Uh, you know some of these errant uh, you know drone and cruise missile attacks. Again, a lot of this stuff is second and third hand. You know from Iran, it's it's not terribly sophisticated, right? They are kind of jury rigging a lot of different components together and that kind of thing to uh, produce a lot of what's in their arsenal. So you know I. I think there may be, you know, efforts on uh, at least in part on you know the Israeli side to consider some sort of, um, you know, maybe some kind of long range strike in Yemen. I don't think that's very likely. I also don't think it's very likely that the U.S. would consider striking targets there. There's been a lot of discussion about that in recent days, but I, I don't see that as terribly likely either. And again, I think if we're talking about ways that you know escalation in these other domains relates back to Gaza and Israel in, in a way that could tie those together in a nasty way. I think it's primarily Iraq and Syria that you have to look at of the countries that you mentioned, John. Yeah, and I'm curious just to just to step back a little bit. You know, we're in all these uh, conflicts in Iraq and Syria with Iranian proxy groups at places like Mission Support Site Euphrates and some of these other areas. Why are we there? Yeah, right. I mean, this is this is kind of the the burning question du jour, and I think um, it is interesting that um, I've gotten that question more than almost any other question, and it's only been since uh, you know this kind of recent conflict uh, in Gaza that I think folks are sort of even remembering that we have a presence there. So, look, I, I think you know we can get into sort of my assessment of. The, the kind of the present justification that's given. So I think it's helpful to start with that and we can kind of break that apart in a couple of pieces. So if you look at um, the current administration's argument or their reasoning, uh, they presented that in their renewal for uh, executive order uh, 13894, which happened a couple of weeks ago to absolutely no fanfare and got no media coverage or attention or anything like that. And basically what the administration laid out in this renewal was a justification right under the National Emergencies Act to say, 
you know, we have to maintain our presence specifically in Syria to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS and to make sure that Turkey doesn't end up uh, taking more territory in northeast Syria. And so I'll kind of I'll kind of address those, uh, you know, one at a time when it comes to ISIS. You know, when I was um, a, a, a targeter and an analyst at CIA uh, for, you know, both the Trump and Biden administrations, I worked directly on on the ISIS threat um, in Iraq and Syria. So I know it very well. Um, the capabilities that ISIS has uh, in Iraq and Syria are a shadow of what they were several years ago, right? The territorial caliphate was destroyed by the global coalition in 2019. And since that point, ISIS has not held a single square foot of territory in Iraq or Syria since. In addition to that, you saw the inspector general's latest report on Iraq and Syria trying to sort of provide an analysis on ISIS's capabilities there. And they came out and straight up used the term survival mode. And they were very clear that ISIS is barely hanging on. They've been absolutely devastated. Um, and they have not been really conducting operations or uh, you know, putting the same kind of pressure on local actors or trying to establish governance, right, like they did in the past. So ISIS is just not, by any objective measure, the first rate threat that it was in 2016 in 2015, right? And that was the big impetus for us to return to Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government in 2011 when, you know, ISIS kind of uh, was spinning up. And, and, I, and we can talk more about the Iraq side in a second. But, you know, so ISIS, right, if, if you're looking at that argument, well, we have to make sure they're defeated. Okay, I would argue that by any kind of reasonably achievable military standard, they, they have been defeated, right? The group still exists. There are still guys out in the Syrian Badia, in the middle of the desert, you know, running around or whatever, but they are not the cohesive, coherent organization when you're talking about a terrorist group that, that, that they were um, several years ago. On top of that, um, you have a constellation of local CT actors in Iraq and Syria that you did not have when ISIS first came about, right? That all have their own reasons to counter ISIS. So you can look at, and, and they range from state actors to non-state actors, right? You have Russia, you have Iran, you have uh, the Iranian militias like the PMF and Fatih Hezbollah, Asib al-Haq, these other groups that were actually very instrumental to the defeat of ISIS, at least in Iraq. You also have the Kurds, you have the SDF. I've worked closely with the Kurds. They, they have a massive self-interest in the ISIS fight that will endure long after any kind of US you know, commitment to the Kurds you know, culminates, right? So there, so these institute, these organizations have a reason to continue to monitor the group and and hedge on the group. The other thing I'd say is um, that our capabilities, when it comes to monitoring or striking ISIS, do not depend on a physical presence in Iraq and Syria. And I know the you know withdrawal from Afghanistan gets gets a, a lot of negative attention, but leaving aside the withdrawal itself and how it was executed. The over-the-horizon strategy for fighting ISIS Khorasan in Afghanistan, for example, has been a huge success. We have been able to continue to keep a lid on the group, monitor the group, conduct strikes on the group when necessary without a single U.S. boot on the ground, right? And without super cooperative local partners. So the idea that, you know, we have to stay because of ISIS, I would say two things. One, 
I kind of disagree. And two, even if you want to do that, you don't need to maintain the physical presence to do so. And then turning to the second piece really quick. So Turkey, right? I think this is fascinating. Erdogan, after October 7th, came out and made this huge speech, right? In front of thousands of people. And he basically, you know, openly stated his intent to pursue a massive detente with the Arab League, with Iran, with a bunch of other actors in the name of sort of a commitment to, um, you know, a pan-Muslim response, right, to what happened uh, in, in Israel and to, you know, his view that Israel is, is now going into Gaza and they're doing all these terrible things. And so now it's incumbent on Turkey to step in, you know, on behalf of the Muslim world to, to try to stop that. So that puts him in an interesting bind uh, when it comes to Syria, right? If he wants to push further into Syria beyond the 30 kilometer, uh, you know, line that they ended up taking in 2019. And I was there for that, by the way. I was, I was there when uh, Turkey went into Syria in 2019. So again, speaking from firsthand knowledge here, the, the, the Turks, I don't think, really do want to get much more involved in Syria than they are at this point. And I know Erdogan's made a lot of strong statements about the Kurds and the terrorists, and we need to wipe them out and all this stuff. And I think those operations in northern Iraq and in northeast Syria will continue. I think Turkey does see a strategic benefit from some level of involvement there. But if you're talking about a deeper incursion where they would now be taking potentially not just, you know, territory that has mostly been under sort of a Kurdish remit, but now you're talking about taking regime-held territory or taking territory from the SDF or encroaching further on other uh, U.S. bases uh, like a Tom, potentially if they were to go that far south and, and that far east, um, they would be creating way more problems than than any kind of strategic benefit they would be earning. And I think the Turk, I think I think the Turks know that. I think Erdogan knows that. Um, there was a good amount of pushback to the initial incursion from the Arab League, even from Russia. I know a lot of people don't understand that, but if you go back and, and look at some of Putin's statements at the time, he actually was against that. And I think his view was that, you know, that undermined Russia's kind of hand. Uh, so he would face pushback from a number of actors kind of on all different sides of the geopolitical spectrum if he were to do so, which is why I don't think that that's a, a valid concern to have. And then separate to that, even if uh, they were to push a little bit further into uh, areas of Northeast Syria, I got to be honest with you, the, the U.S. interests at play there when we're talking about, you know, again, major uh, vital strategic interests for the United States are very minimal. They are very minimal. And so I don't really think it would matter much if they did. And again, I say this as somebody that, you know, uh, has a very strong affinity for the Kurds and, and a very strong affinity for a lot of our, our partners and allies in the region, especially the ones that that, that work together to fight ISIS. But look, I mean, our alliances um, should be driven by our interests and, and, and what's needed at the time. And I think even the Kurds understand that the natural kind of culmination of our partnership regarding ISIS sort of makes sense. Like they may not like it, but I think they know, I think they understand that that's kind of what's happening and, and likely will happen uh, over the next several years. So uh, those are the two reasons the administration lays out and I don't think they're valid. I just don't. And and if we're talking about ISIS, as I laid out, I, I don't find them to be a, a, a threat like they were before. I don't think 
that they this 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 constant notion that well we have to be on guard for an ISIS resurgence. I think that's frankly just policy inertia and sort of a a, a lazy response to uh, not wanting to to ask the harder questions about what our posture should look like going forward and how we can adjust it and what the logistics look like. I think that's an easy way to duck some of those tougher questions. And then on the Turkey side, like I explained, I'm not convinced that Turkey would push further. And I think that even if they did, um, you know, claiming that we need to have men and women in uniform uh, under fire on a daily basis over a concern like that, I just don't think is uh, a valid. Yeah. And, you know, we've recently shot down a Turkish drone that was approaching one of our bases and we have real frictions with the Turks in these uh, in some of these areas right. where our forces are in contact. And, you know, as as easy as it is to forget, Turkey is technically our ally, uh, you know, so there's this other layer of it. But in addition to those two rationales you gave, it sure seems like there's also been a hidden third rationale to our presence in Iraq and Syria, namely containing Iranian influence, uh, which we can't really say because none of the local players are going to kind of admit that 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 they're cool with that. Uh, right. But do you feel like that's another driver here? Yeah, I you know, and again, I say this as somebody that spent time in the region and, and worked these issues in government. It, it, it's really sad, I think, in some ways, how the massive emergence of Iranian influence in the Levant really has been the result of bad U.S. foreign policy. And now, as we kind of are coming to terms with that realization, or at least the realization that that influence has expanded greatly, now we're kind of, you know, we're kind of just grasping at anything we can to try to prevent that. And I think you're right, John. I think I think if you if you're really being serious about, you know, okay, that's the upfront justification the administration gives. I, I don't buy either reason. I don't think they're valid. I think they're really more of a pretext. And I think really the interests that are that are being served are an effort to contain Iranian influence, and then also, you know, this far-fetched hope that. If we sort of, you know, keep U.S. presence in some of these resource-rich areas of Syria, where you know there's a lot of oil and other things like that, that somehow over time that will make, you know, uh, that will undermine, you know, the 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 Assad regime and sort of hold on power. And I think we've seen already that that's just not accurate. I mean, they, you know, and again, I say this, you know putting on my, you know, analyst hat here. I'm not, I'm not making any normative, you know, comments here. I'm just kind of, you know, if you're handicapping it, um, you know, he has survived a number of U.S. sanctions, the Caesar Act, which has been very brutal on the, on the people of Syria as well. And uh, sort of this denial of a lot of these oil resources as well. So if that, you know, if that's kind of one of these, you know, third order, like, well, if we stay there long enough, you know, maybe, maybe it'll, it'll hurt Assad enough. That's not a valid reason either. Um, and when it comes to Iranian influence, look, I think the big, I, I think the big case study for this is Iraq, right? We we went in in two thousand three, and uh, we toppled the government there. And there has been a political vacuum that has never really been properly filled ever since. And uh, you look at what happened with the rise of ISIS, which was in large part, at least, generated by um, Sunni grievances, right, in much of Western Iraq and in places like Nineveh and Ambar and things like that, where they were boxed out of the political system 
following, uh, you know, the, the removal of Saddam and, and sort of the you know, coalition provisional authority and the governments that followed that, um, they didn't really have a lot of options. Right. So th- so that was at least in part a driver for the rise of ISIS. And then if you look at what's happened in the fight against ISIS, that was really an excuse for a lot of Iran aligned militia groups to, uh, you know, sort of continue to box the Sunnis out of the political system to say, look, these guys are all, you know, terrorists and things like that. And that's now precipitated the exact kind of, uh, you know, sort of, I feel like it's every two or three years now we have a parliamentary crisis in Iraq. And that's kind of what's happening right now. And I won't get too far in the weeds, but I think it's really important to talk about because it relates to Gaza and it relates to Israel and it relates to, uh, you know, our interests in the region as well and our and the safety of our troops. You know, in the last couple of weeks, you've had a pretty phenomenal uh, political sea change occur where, you know, the two checks on sort of the, you know, the this uh, PMF aligned, you know, Iran aligned faction in the in the government uh, have been wiped out. Right. First, you saw the head of the Iraqi CTS, the counterterrorism service, removed uh, and replaced with a pro-Iran hardliner. And he is he was a guy right, that ran the service there that was the most aligned to the U.S. of any kind of, you know, part of the Iraqi government, or at least you're talking about their military and security and intel services. And they would go out and and respond to attacks on U.S. troops and defend them and this kind of thing. Um, So he's been replaced with a uh, pro-Iran hardliner. And and then uh, you can look at Halbusi, the, the speaker of the Iraqi parliament, who's basically the most prominent Sunni politician in the country, you know, you saw a number of, you know, what I would call, you know, uh, spurious corruption charges sort of ginned up on him and he was thrown out. So, uh, you, you know, the checks on, you know, some of these more, you know, more extreme elements, these, you know, IRGC aligned militia groups have been removed from the Iraqi government. And so I think, you know, if the if the effort of our involvement in Iraq was to, you know, stabilize the region or to try to make sure that Iran, you know, did not have more influence when all was said and done. We we failed at that. And we have now created a, I think in large part, we've, we've at least contributed to a situation where Iran more or less owns Iraq. It's, it's more or less a vassal state to Iran at this point, right? We have to, you know, let them buy energy from Iran with, you know, U.S. dollars, right? I mean, the, and this kind of thing, because it's just, this is kind of how, how, it's, how it's working now. So I think... By that standard, you know, we have not succeeded if that if that's what we were trying to do by limiting Iranian influence. Um, and I think that will only make a lot of these uh, attacks on U.S. troops, um, you know, uh, less friction. Right. As far as trying to stop those from happening. You saw Blinken show up and basically ask uh, Prime Minister Sudani, you know, uh, please go to these, you know, militia heads and go to Iran and basically ask them to stop doing this which is, is not really going to be sufficient. And so if there aren't as many checks on sort of the, the, the more, you know, IRGC affiliated parts of these groups in Iraq, then, you know, the, the checks are going to have to come from elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that, um, that, that Iran uh, is looking at the situation in Iraq and, and saying, you know, uh, we feel less, you know, capable or powerful than we did you know, five, 10 years ago. So I'd like to hear your response to what I might call the case against us exiting 
Iraq and Syria. So in Syria, it would be, uh, you know, the Kurds are going to get wiped uh, by some combination of the Turks, the regime, the Russians, the Iranians, uh, you know, yet another betrayal of the Kurds. Uh, and that and that the forces that would move in have proven less enthusiastic about fighting ISIS uh, than and certainly less enthusiastic about containing Iranian influence than the Kurds have, that the Iranians uh, would have a straight line down uh, from from Iran all the way to the Golan Heights and Lebanon, which would significantly increase the chances of a very serious war. Uh, in that area, uh, you know, possibly up to and including like the destruction of Beirut in the event of uh, an Israel-Hezbollah war. And then you would also see a lot of these folks that are being held in places like Al-Hul that are ISIS-aligned, that sure tell people who go there how much they hate the West and are raising their kids to do attacks. Uh, And then over in Iraq, that as bad as the situation is, that it would be even worse, uh, that Iraq would just be as much of an, uh, an Iranian satrapy uh, as can be, uh, you know, that, that it would be totally subjugated uh, and become a base of all kinds of nastiness. What do you make of that, that case? Because that's to me, that's those arguments are probably like the best ones you can make for keeping us there at this point. Yeah, and I and I think that's fair. Um, you know, starting with kind of your your second point, the the argument that um, if we continue to somehow stay in in Iraq, that it will check Iranian influence um, has just been completely debunked by everything that's happened over the past five or ten years. And the idea that if we somehow just continue to hang out there, that that sort of institutional capture will stop or reverse itself. It just that's just not playing out. So like, yeah, that that it, it sucks. It's a, it's a negative you know, impact of really 20 years of, of various different factors, uh, you know, a lot of which have to do with U.S. foreign policy. But there's a number of other factors, too. Um, I don't think that somehow remaining there would would prevent further capture of sort of Iraqi institutions by Iran. I think that's already been uh sort of underway and, and and largely I would say is almost complete at this point. And that's also why I think you're seeing a large amount of impunity for the attacks that are happening on U.S. forces. I think what's happened in Gaza has kind of served as a convenient excuse in some ways for these Shia militias to ramp up attacks and sort of begin sort of a new campaign that, by the way, I don't think will slow down. I know that, that in the past, these attacks have ebbed and flowed. I'm actually concerned that they're, they're, that what we're seeing as far as the pace and the intensity of these attacks is going to continue. So I, I don't think that the argument that if we just stay there with no clear mission and, you know, subject U.S. troops to uh, to dying for that, um, it, it will somehow check Iran. If we want to do that, I think we have to, to go about it in other ways. And I think that even the underlying issues in Iraq, like the, you know, Sunni grievances, U.S. military, right? I mean, we've been, we've been here before. It can't, cannot solve those problems, Right. Those problems have to be solved by, uh, you know, internal reforms and uh, international NGOs and and aid groups and other. I mean, other that's that's just not the purview of the U.S. military to try to solve. Um, as far as this other argument, you know, the Shia Crescent and this sort of you know this total control of the Levant. Again, I would just submit that 
when you look at what is deterring um, Iran from a more aggressive move like that, it's not really our presence in Iraq or Syria. I think it's more of our strategic capabilities. And I think if you look at what's happened since October 7th, you can kind of see some of that, right? The carrier strike groups that are in the region now, the massive amounts of, of air and naval power that we moved into the region over the past several weeks, like th those to me serve as deterrents, even if they are sort of limited in scope to the conflict. And I'm not saying that we should, we should have them there permanently or anything like that as some sort of check on Iran. But I think what Iran understands is that the U.S. can surge forces anywhere in the world in hours very easily. And um, if we were to see some sort of, you know, more aggressive play in Syria or, or something like that, um, I think they would be concerned that the U.S. would have other, other mechanisms, other levers to pull to try to prevent that from happening, which I don't think, again, have anything to do with, uh, you know, who we have in Iraq or who we have in Syria. So when you've talked about moving troops out of Iraq and Syria, you've mentioned a specific phased plan out where you, you know, specifically move those troops to CENTCOM hubs in Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, or the UAE. Given Iran's relatively limited involvement in the current conflict in Gaza, why is reframing that conflict within the Persian Gulf uh, the strongest strategic move? So I think a couple of things on that. I think if, if, if you're talking about Syria first, right? We have about 900 troops in Syria scattered across, you know, a handful of different locations. Some of these locations, you're talking about like 100 or fewer people at some of these locations, right? You could pull people out of these spots in an afternoon if you wanted to. And because they're so remote and they're so austere, you know, right, logistically, they would have to go back to one of these CENTCOM hubs before eventually coming back to the United States anyway, which I think really is the end goal, right? I, I, I personally do not assess that our presence in Iraq and Syria meets the bar for, for a, uh, a clear uh, mission with a plan to succeed and a vital national security interest. It just doesn't. And so ultimately, I would love for them to come home. I, I, I don't just want to kind of, you know, shuffle them over to other places. But I think two things stick out, right? Camp Arif John in Kuwait and Mwafik Salty Air Base in Jordan. These are places that already in small parts have support functions for the, the counter ISIS mission that is occurring in Iraq and Syria. So you could pull these people back to places like that, not, not even bringing them into the Gulf or anything. And you would accomplish a couple of things. One, I, and I don't know if people understand this, you know, when, when you're at one of these remote bases, right? And I, I don't think people understand this either. The, you know, people think of US bases and they think of, Bagram at its height, or they think of, you know, Nellis or Edwards or something like that. These are, you know, very remote, you know, you're talking about sandbags and concertina wire and tents and things like that. I mean, these are not, these are not robust facilities for people that are concerned about leaving behind equipment or whatever. There's, there's very little equipment there anyway, kind of by design. So, right. I mean, if, you know, those concerns I don't think are merited. And then if you, if you were to pull uh, guys out. I think the, the big thing is they're, they are very vulnerable, right? And you look at the, the 74 attacks that have happened in just a couple week period. We're very lucky that Americans have not died. And it really is just luck. And I, again, I'm saying that firsthand here. The, the, you, know, you had a situation in Erbil where a uh, drone actually punctured the, uh, the barracks where kind of the mess is, and it just didn't detonate. And had it detonated, 
you know, you'd have probably six or seven dead Americans right now. So the the big the big reason, right? If it's like, well, why do that now? And you know, aren't there second or third order effects we have to think about? Absolutely. But in my opinion, it's urgent because we cannot justify asking our men and women to stay in these places where they're not even right. They're they're very vulnerable and they're not even doing the mission that they're there to do. That's the point I was I kind of ham-handedly was trying to circle back to is when you are under this kind of threat, you know, you'll hear terms like force protection or condition delta or things like that. The the actual job of the folks there are it's not being performed when they're under this kind of threat. So the idea that they're there to fight ISIS, nobody's fighting ISIS. Nobody's been fighting ISIS for se- for 7 weeks because they have been entirely hunkered down on trying to protect themselves, on trying to avoid attacks on secondary and tertiary sort of jobs and duties that you have on base when it comes to, you know, uh, you know, medical responsibilities or protecting these sites and things like that. You're not actually doing your day job. So, so those would be the arguments for getting those guys out now is, is the massive threat they're under. And then also the fact that they're just not doing their job. And if you put them, if you, again, if you, if you're of the mind that the mission is important and they need to keep doing it, then they're much they're, they're much better positioned to continue that work from Camp Arif John or Mwafik Salty or one of these other places where they could still ostensibly at least do some of uh, you know the job that they're there to perform. Um, I also think that you know if, if their concern is well if we move these guys around you know could Iran take this as a threat or or, or something like that? I mean we've got ten thousand U.S. troops at Al Air Base. Um, if we you know had another two hundred of them show up on a couple of ferry flights or a couple of helicopters, I don't think Iran would fundamentally view that as, as a shift in U.S. posture in the region or some sort of strategic realignment or anything like that. And, and again, I think you could largely avoid having them go to the Gulf in the first place. But the, the main idea here is it's just not justifiable. And it is a dereliction of duty to ask our men and women to stay here where all they're doing is getting attacked all day. And they're not really capable of defending themselves because of the limited resources that they have there. And they're not even doing their jobs. They're not doing the jobs that they're there to do. So let's get them somewhere else and try to at least, you know, have them do that while that overall presence is reviewed. And then I think ultimately, if that were to happen, if they were to be moved, it's very, very likely that they would return, right? I think that if you if you know kind of how DOD works and, and kind of how the policy side of things works, once those, you know, if we were to pull back from some of those sites, nobody would be going back to them. And, uh, you know, you could you could easily drop, you know, a 2000 pound JDAM on, on the empty base and, and it's not there anymore. Right. The tents and sandbags, whatever, are not there anymore. You don't have to worry about any kind of other equipment. And so I think to me, that does make the most sense strategically. And I've been very frustrated with this false dichotomy that, well, on the one hand, we have to conduct these, you know, kind of meaningless airstrikes on empty warehouses in Bukamal in, in eastern Syria, or we have to like strike Iran and their oil refineries and Bandar Abbas and that kind of thing. I mean, there are other options here. And it's been very frustrating to see sort of the, the one track mind that, uh, you know, the policy community in D.C. has on this issue. And I think, you know, to the question of, well, you know, if we were to withdraw, wouldn't Iran you know, be celebrating this and, and wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't we look weak and wouldn't that affect, uh, you know, uh, our deterrence and all these other places? I would just say, again, one, we should not be making 
decisions about our force posture globally based solely on optics or what, how we think our adversaries will spin something. That's just not how we should be making decisions. And two, I think if, you, if you're a student of international relations or if you're a, a former practitioner uh, like me, you just understand that's not the way it works, right? China is not going to uh, you know, have, have made up their mind to invade Taiwan and, and you know, the, the PLA will stop and go, wait a minute, you know, President Xi, you know, U.S. troops are, are, are they still in Syria? You know, we got to make sure. Like, no, that's, that's not how that's, that's not how any of that works. So I think um, those are mostly, again, excuses to kind of avoid having the tougher discussions about these issues. And if Iran wants to celebrate it or spin it however they want, yeah, that's, that's what they're going to do. And it shouldn't really bother us or affect us because, you know, we have combatant commands dedicated to all these different parts of the world. Our deterrence missions are, uh, you know, strong and separate in all these other places. And we don't really need to worry about um, how that would be impacted either, in my view. We have the way that our rivals uh, like Iran would spin things, but then we also have the ways that our uh, regional partners might spin things. And um, one one thing you've written about pretty recently uh, is the Abraham Accords, the state of Saudi-Israeli normalization. Uh, and you've specifically written that security guarantees for Saudi Arabia should be an absolute no as we work toward uh, Israeli-Saudi normalization. Uh, I, I certainly understand that you want you would want to probably pull things further out of of, uh, you know, those those CENTCOM hubs. But could a strategic shift towards Saudi Arabian basing have a similar effect to a security guarantee, at least in the near term, or at least be, you know, uh, used as political leverage toward uh, Saudi Arabia reaching that end? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, my, my, pri- my primary preference would be, uh, you know, Kuwait or Jordan. But again, assuming that, that we had to, you know, uh, you know, move a good number of these folks to Saudi Arabia for whatever reason. Um, I think that is a valid concern. I think, uh, and that's an unfortunate aspect to, uh, you know, the, the U.S. presence in the Middle East, which is, you know, altogether about, you know, 30, 35,000 troops in, in any number of countries. And I think you're right, Patrick, the, that really any country that we have a significant presence in, uh, they're certainly interpreting that as a security guarantee, whether we've made one explicit with a mutual defense treaty or any other, you know, mechanism or MOU or anything like that. That's how it's being viewed, um, and that should give us pause. And we should be we should be thinking about um, not trying to expand those presences unless absolutely necessary. I think for me, again, you know, thinking about it in a, in, in really kind of the life and death terms, especially when it comes to our troops in Iraq and Syria. I think if they were to end up in Saudi Arabia, and even if they weren't able to come home, I, I would still consider that much better in the long run than them staying in Iraq and Syria. Um, but look, as far as the Saudis go, uh, yeah, I think MBS has sort of been operating as though he's had a U.S. security guarantee already. Uh, you know, that I think, I think you can make that argument that a lot of what he's done in Yemen and, and, and in other places around the world, he's kind of done, you know, with, you know, assuming kind of that the U.S. would be would be there. And that's why I think a security guarantee, a formal one, would be so devastating because, uh, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be this sort of, uh, you know, assumption. It would be kind of a full-blown endorsement for the Saudis to continue the reckless driving that they've been engaged in for the better part of the last decade. And look, again, when we're, th- when we're thinking about allies and commitments, you know, we have to think about 
the strategic liabilities that can come with them. And Saudi Arabia, whether it's the killing of Jamal Khashoggi or whether it's uh, the massive miscalculations that went into the war in Yemen or whether it's, you know, this uh, you know, strange kind of uh, internecine, you know, warfare with other Gulf states that Saudi Arabia has engaged in. I mean, these are all liabilities for the United States, right? We don't gain anything by providing a security guarantee to a country that has been as reckless as Saudi Arabia has in recent years. So uh, I, I don't think that we should we should provide them a security guarantee. I think, you know, as far as, you know, does a strategic shift have a similar effect? I would argue that, unfortunately, the Saudis are kind of already behaving like they have one. And to me, that is sort of, we have to undo that mentally for them. And I think the way to do that is to say outright, upfront, you're not, you will not receive a formal security guarantee from the United States. And I think more broadly on the normalization deal, you know, we can, we can support it. I, I don't think we need to, you know, have a, a strong pro or con frame to it. I think really the question is just how much is it going to cost us? And if it's got to cost us a security guarantee, the answer is no. I would even be okay. And again, I'm you know just speaking for myself here. I would even consider, depending on other things that were part of the deal, especially if they were related to Israel and Palestine or, or mitigating some of the other, you know, uh, conflict that we're seeing in the region right now, you know, help with limited, you know, assistance on civilian nuclear energy or other things like that. I'm not even entirely against. I think we'd have to talk a lot about what that would look like and what the constraints would be on that and, and any number of other questions uh, related to that. But I would just say, look, I think the U.S. should be kind of to just hear all of the various proposals and sort of address them ad hoc. Um, and, and again, if there's a way to sort of bring all this back to the Abraham Accords and right some of the wrongs, uh, in my view, that the Abraham Accords had in doing this deal, even if there had to be some limited U.S. concessions, I would be OK with that, because I think to your point, uh, Patrick, the effort to go around the region and try to solve every problem but the Israel-Palestine problem and to try to work on every relationship but that issue and leaving it aside is a huge reason that we are where we are post-October 7th. And so to me, you know, that, you know, the U.S. does have an interest in trying to make the Middle East an area uh, that it doesn't need to concern itself with so much going forward. And a lot of people use the term stability and things like that. And I think that's a bit of a, you know, that's a bit of a sneaky term. And so I don't think the U.S. has uh, has really any reason to make sure that the Middle East is stable. What I would say it should do, though, is make sure that the Middle East is at the very least not a region that the U.S. has to concern itself with. And if that means, you know, some, you know, additional stability, or whatever, again, not at, at too significant a cost to the United States, I'm okay with that. I think the bigger question is, what really are U.S. interests in the Middle East? And in my view, they're mostly related to free and open uh, trade and navigation of of seas and airways, and you know, to the extent that you have to keep an eye on uh, terrorism threats to the homeland. Again, credible ones that that merit attention. I think that's fair. But I think beyond those two things, uh, you know, the U.S. does not really have significant strategic interests in the Middle East. And I think really the, the, the answer is to, is to just not be so involved in it. I think if you look at the, the amount of money and the amount of treasure and blood and everything that we have spent on the region over the past 
several decades, you know, I, I think if folks are being honest with themselves, they're very hard pressed to tell you exactly what the United States has gained from a lot of that engagement. And so, again, I'm just of the mind that, you know, if the U.S. can, can do some of these things to increase the burden sharing of our allies in the region and, you know, try to mitigate our involvement to focus on things that I think are much more directly related to America's welfare, economic stability, uh, security, I think, I think we should. There was a controversy a few days ago where a, uh, a, a relatively senior CIA analytic official had changed her banner picture on, on Facebook, I believe, to a picture of someone waving a, uh, a Palestinian flag. Uh, and this was seen as uh, improper uh, on a number of grounds. I'm curious what your reaction is to this. Yeah, so, you know, I, I saw this kind of go viral and this got a lot of attention. I think for me, you know, my perspective as a former intelligence officer is really, you know, I, you know, it's just not really worth the time or the energy to be on social media, because I think things like this can get, you know, blown out of proportion and things like that. I, I don't think that um, this individual, you know, is it was make, you know, is kind of endor like endorsing one side or the other in the conflict or, or, or making some kind of um, statement that I think is inappropriate in, in a personal capacity. I do think, though, right, the optics of that are obviously going to attract a lot of attention. And so, um, you know, when I uh, entered on duty at CIA, you know, I got rid of all my social media because I thought not only is it kind of uh, beneath the work that that I was going to be doing, but also that, you know, again, if you have some kind of situation like this, people are all, always going to, you know, bring a lot of attention to it and focus on it and try to, you know, uh, turn it into something that maybe it's not. Um, again, I don't, I don't think that this person should have been posting probably about the conflict or, or at least, you know, engaging in it publicly. But at the same time, um, you know, I do think some of the, some of the drama about this is probably a little bit, a little bit overheated. Um, but again, you know, that's why, you know, I didn't engage in any kind of social media while I was there. But, um, you know, the idea that, you know, you check your politics at the door as an intelligence officer, I think is an important one. Um, and that's something that I did uh, during my six years uh, in the IC. And I think it's important. And I think if you want to engage on the policy side of things, you know, it, it's probably a good idea to, to transition into the, into the policy world, uh, which is kind of the decision that I made. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, the work day to day, uh, in the intel community, you can make, uh, you know, you can point out opportunities, but really you're there not to be policy prescriptive. You're there to help enact the policies of the executive branch. Um, and it was very interesting uh, to do that across two very different administrations, at least for me, with, with President Trump and President Biden. Um, but again, you're there, right, to effectuate the policies of the president and of the White House. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, you know, it's probably best to avoid um, anything that might give the impression that, that you know, you're weighing in on these things uh, publicly or, or, or personally or whatever, given that it's really not a policy function at the end of the day, even though you are, 
you know, coordinating on policy and, and you can raise sort of various policy opportunities. But again, I think it just gives the perception that, that you're being prescriptive maybe when, when you shouldn't be. So that's kind of my thought on, on all that. But I do think the attention that it got was, I think, a little bit, a little bit much given uh, allegedly what, you know, I haven't seen the picture, but allegedly kind of what, what happened here. So beyond deleting social media, uh, what would be your advice for uh, folks, you know, in undergrad programs or master's programs who hope to pursue a similar career path to yours? Yeah, I think, you know, it, I think it's really important to understand the levers of power and to have experience in government if you want to change things. And if you want to put forward policy recommendations that actually stand a chance of getting implemented. And I think, um, you know, with, with a lot of folks being more interested in realism and restraint um, in recent years, it's really important that more people uh, in that group get some of this experience, right? It's not enough to just write papers about it all day or to, or to just sort of say, you know, we should, we should leave Syria. Well, okay, how are we going to do that? What are the order of events? What's the logistical load like? How does OSDP go about making that, you know, making those policy changes at the Pentagon? How does that get coordinated in the NSC, right? You have to understand how this stuff works. And I think, um, I think that is one area that, you know, as I kind of move out of government into the think tank world that I want to focus on, and I know you guys do a great job of as well, is trying to groom, you know, talent and, and develop talent um, in this way, because look, personnel is policy. And um, I think regardless of how, you know, anybody feels about President Trump, I think maybe he had some realist or restraint instincts at the beginning of his administration. But then when it came time to fill, you know, all the mid-level roles at the State Department and the NSC and, uh, you know, some of the appointed positions in the intel community and things like that, there's just not really a body of people that was there to try to effectuate those ideas. And that leads to, right, people like Elliot Abrams or John Bolton or whatever, getting a lot of these jobs. And, and then maybe there's not really a coherent vision or policy process that's playing out. And so I think it is incumbent on, you know, kind of the realism and, and restraint community to be developing that bench of people, right? You need those sort of mid-level people. That is where a lot of the, the sausage is made and where a lot of this stuff gets done. You know, it's, it's not even really at the most senior levels. It's your, you know, you got to have a realist, you know, Brett McGurk or a realist Jake Sullivan. You got, you got to have people, you know, in their thirties and forties or, or whatever, or in their late twenties that can fill a lot of these mid-level positions and carry out the will of the president, right? You know, these country, country director roles at the NSC are super critical. Um, and so I think it's important that, that um, you know, if, if we want to try to change some of these things on the policy front, that, um, that we develop the, the bench of people, because a lot of times it really is just that simple. It really is about butts and seats and, and having people there um, that kind of understand what the vision is of the White House and the, and the president. Yeah, Morton Blackwell once said, "You can't beat somebody with nobody," and I think that's a good uh, a good right. thought to keep <laughs> in mind. With that, we are out of time. Mike Domino, uh, that is, uh, it was great having you on Security Dilemma. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Students and young professionals apply to the Marcellus Policy Fellowship by January 14th. Mid-career professionals apply to the Strategic Leaders Fellowship by January 24th. Remember to rate and review on your podcast app and join us every Tuesday for new episodes of Security Dilemma. 